If you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 5. Last week we finished up, obviously, John chapter 4. We saw the miracle, the second miracle that Jesus did in Cana. And this week we're going to see another miracle in John chapter 5. I've entitled the message, Get Up and Walk, which I think you'll understand why when we get into the text, but you're going to see how it applies to our own lives as well, not, in, not just in the life of this man that we're going to be looking at uh, in John chapter 5 tonight. So John chapter 5, starting at verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we're not sure what feast is being spoken of here. Uh, many times throughout scriptures we go through the Gospels, and it's very clear what's, which feast is being talked about. But in this particular case, we don't know for sure, but we know that it was a feast that Jesus felt was necessary to attend, to fulfill the law as a Jewish man, but more importantly because he had a divine appointment in Jerusalem. Remember over the past few weeks we've talked about that, that how Jesus only did what the Father directed him to do. And so Jesus had divine appointments each day with particular people and groups of people. And so he would go to these places and he would minister to them and before them. And how that's true in our own lives as well. Is that if we're looking for it, for each one of us, God has a divine appointment for us in a particular day or in a particular week. And so if we have our spiritual eyes on, if we're in tune with the Holy Spirit in His leading, He's going to guide us to who that person or persons might be that we would have that divine appointment with. So that's true with Jesus. Uh, he's our ultimate example in that. So it says that He went to this feast and He went up to Jerusalem. So He was uh, in Jerusalem uh, in John chapter 3 we saw when He met with Nicodemus. And then also, uh, we see that he left that area, went into Judea, wound up uh, in Samaria where he met with the woman at the well, that divine appointment. Then he went on to Cana once again. We saw early on his first miracle was in Cana where he changed the water into wine. Now he's back in Cana and he has this opportunity to minister to this nobleman who asked for his son to be healed. And Jesus does heal him without even being there. He's in a whole other community, Capernaum, and Jesus says, go your way, your son has been healed. And we saw, talked last week about the faith of that man and how Jesus said, go your way, your son has been healed, and he did just that. There was no argument, there were no questions, and we even saw that the man even spent another night in Cana before he went home which uh, showed us the faith that he had as well. And he was obedient in what Jesus showed him to do. And so we're going to see tonight in this text that Jesus has another appointment uh, with another man that needs a healing. In verse 2 it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. So Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. It says he goes up to Jerusalem. If you ever go to Israel, I had the opportunity to go in 2007. No matter where you're coming from in Israel, you go up to get to Jerusalem. It truly is a city on a hill. So uh, you're always moving up when you're going to Jerusalem from wherever you are in the country. And it says in Jerusalem, there's this thing called the Sheep Gate. Uh, all around uh, the walls of the holy city, there are these gates. Uh, and it was amazing we, when we were there because there's still imprints in the stone from the wars that have taken place over the years that you can see above these sheep gates. Uh, so this, this particular gate that he's going through called the Sheep Gate, uh, it's believed to be located in the northeast corner of the old city there. Uh, 
And it was called this because that's the gate that they brought the sheep through that they were going to use to sacrifice at the temple. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know, I suppose uh, if they were sacrificing hogs, you could call it the hog gate or the cattle gate or whatever it is. But they don't, so they called it the sheep gate. And so it's interesting to note that this is probably the gate that Jesus came through coming from Galilee because it's on that side, the north side. So you would have the Lamb of God going through the gate that the lambs of God would go through for sacrifice. Now it says there's a pool there called Bethesda, having five porches. Now when we hear that name, it probably rings a bell for us because we hear of, what, Bethesda Naval Hospital out east. And it's named after this. It's a place of healing. So for centuries, there was much speculation about the exact location of this pool of Bethesda. Because if you go to Israel, you see all these archaeological sites where they've dug up all this stuff. Uh, they, they have a saying over there that it doesn't matter where they dig in Jerusalem they, or in Israel, they find something. And that's true. There's, there's so much history over there. There's so much going on. Anytime they go to uh, put in a new highway or something, it's always uh, delayed because they find some archaeological site that they have to dig first. So in this particular area, there's been excavations that had gone on since 1856. But in 1960, when they found the Copper Scroll, how many of you have heard about the Copper Scroll? You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is another scroll that they found in those caves at Qumran. And it's called the Copper Scroll because it's made out of copper. Makes sense. So anyway, when they were translating this, uh, and when it was first published, it contained writing that confirmed the description that we have here by the Apostle John, calling the pools Bethesda. It was, it was written as uh, the pool of twin outpourings was a description of it. And then also in the writings of this guy by the name of Bordeaux, he was a pilgrim that went through Israel back in A.D. 333. This pilgrim called Bordeaux. I'm not going to try to come across like, you know, the pilgrim Bordeaux because I had no idea who he was either. I'm not even sure if that's how you pronounce his name. But anyway, he went through Jerusalem and he wrote that inside the city is a pair of pools with five arcades called Bethsaida. Well, it makes sense. We know that in John's description there are these five porches, these five colonnades, these five arcades. Uh, they're describing the same place. So there's been a lot of recent excavations there in this place that's further confirmed these are the pools of Beth Bethesda. And then on 2007, when I went to Israel, uh, I confirmed that as well, just so you guys know. <laughs> Carried a lot of weight, I'm sure. But it's right next to an old stone church called St. Anne's that was built by the Crusaders. Beautiful church. I had the opportunity to lead worship in that church, and the acoustics were just amazing. We had a group of about 30 people, and you would think it was a two or three hundred member choir, just the way the, the, the sound rang out. It was, it was just an amazing place. But anyway, right next to St. Anne's Church are these ruins of the pools of Bethesda. Now it says in verse 3 that in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So at some point in time, word got around that there was some type of healing that would take place in these pools of Bethesda. And so it drew all of these people that were sick and afflicted, and they would hang out around this pool. You know how pools are in the summer, just lots of people hanging around the water. Same scene, only it's a very sad scene, all these people that are sick, a multitude of sick and handicapped people all hanging out around this pool, just waiting for, hoping for the moving of the water. And when the water moved, 
it was believed that whoever could get in there first would be healed of whatever uh, was wrong with them. And evidently it, it had been proven because people continued to go, right? I can't necessarily explain uh, how this happened, but they're trying to position themselves to have the opportunity to be the first one in, to be healed of their affliction. So what of this pool and its moving water or the stirring of the water at certain times? Scholars debate about this all the time. Uh, was it geological, some kind of a geological thing? Was it an underground spring? Uh, they've done some excavations in the past uh, 25 years where they've uncovered this uh, stone piping that was running from uh, Bethlehem, just outside of Bethlehem, in an area that was called Solomon's Pools, and ran all the way to Jerusalem. And there's debate, well, was that feeding these pools? Well, all we know, all we know at this point is what we have from the text. And the text says what? An angel went down at a certain time and stirred the water. Well, God's word is true. <laughs> so we can just take that on faith, that that's, that's what took place. Uh, how it happened, how it came about, we don't actually know, but let's just take the word for what it says and go from there. We may want more of an explanation, but that's, that's all we have from the text. You know, so we can debate, we can speculate about this pool nearby the sheep gate. I thought about doing a, you know, a rap thing with that because it, it rhymes, but uh, Chris has warned me about doing such things. So the important thing to focus on here is the scene itself, this multitude of people with, without hope. And their only hope was based on this belief in this pool, this water, and what it can do for them. You remember several weeks ago when we were studying about the Samaritan woman how she and the Samaritan people held Jacob's well in such high regard. It was a lifeline, a source of water for them. And Jesus comes along and teaches and reveals to them that, what? He, he's living water. And in this scene, we see in our text tonight, the multitudes believe that if I can do this or if I can do this in the right way according to what tradition or the belief says, then I can be healed if I follow this system, this method, I can be healed. So they're relying on their own way or on the ways of the world to be healed. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. So whether it's the Lord actually causing this healing in this pool or the Lord doing whatever he's going to do in our own lives, uh, his ways are not our ways. We don't always understand them. That's what faith is all about, just having faith in what he's promised in his word and us resting on that. So it says in verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now we don't know if this man was 38 years old and he'd been that way since birth or if he'd been in some type of an accident or uh, something had happened in his life that it caused him to have this condition. We don't know, but it's obvious of one thing here that, that the text shows us very clearly. He couldn't walk because Jesus healed him of that very thing. So whether it was legs, whether it was back, whatever it was, the man couldn't walk. But can you imagine having the same condition, a condition like that for 38 years? It's, it's just, it's hard to imagine. All of us have dealt with illnesses and things, you know, but having a condition to last that long and still having hope, he's still living in the hope that something could happen to change his situation, his condition. And he's relying on this pool and its water for that to be accomplished. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said, do you want to be made well? And we see the response of this man he didn't really answer the question, did he? 
It's a very simple question. Do you want to be made well? Yes or no? Do, do you want to be made well? I think the man, though, in his answer is basically saying that there are reasons that I can't be made well. Here, here are the reasons. My circumstances don't allow me to. This is what I need to do, but I can't do it. I have no one to help me. Because he thought that that was the only way. The Lord's questions, when the Lord asks a question, they're typically very simple, aren't they? Our answers can be all over the place. They can be very complex. But the questions he asks are very simple of us. We come up with excuses, don't we? We, we rationalize about the situation. We rely on things other than the Lord and what he has to offer us. So the question to this man is, do you want to be made well? What's the question that the Lord might be asking any one of us tonight, all of us tonight? God's got questions. He's got answers. We just need to seek him to find out those answers. Let's look briefly tonight at three questions the Lord asked two people that we know very well, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, God asks Adam a question. God had said to Adam that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know the Lord will come walking through the garden then, and he'll ask a question of Adam. Well, Adam and Eve, as we know the story, are tempted, and they do eat of this tree that God said not to eat of. They realized that they had done wrong, and they tried to do what? They tried to hide from God, which is impossible. <laughs> you can't hide from God. But in chapter 3, verse 9, God asks Adam, Where are you? So then come the excuses. Adam says, I heard your voice and I was naked, so I hid. Now I can honestly tell you, out of all the excuses I've used before, I've never used that one. <laughs> it's just never come up, you know. I heard your voice, Lord, and I was naked, so I hid. No, you know, I didn't. How many of you? Have you any? No, you're not going to raise your hand anyway. And then he says, the woman who you gave me, she gave it to me. So this lame thing, you know, about being naked and I hid, you can't hide from God. And then he blames it on his wife, like any husband in his right mind would do, you know. Uh, it's her fault. But God says, where are you? Now, I want to make it very clear, God didn't lose Adam and Eve. It wasn't like he was walking through the garden. I wonder where they went. I can't find them anywhere. He knew right where they were. He knew where they were positionally in the garden. He also knew where they were positionally in him. They were trying to hide something. They were trying to hide their disobedience. God said, don't do this. They did it. And they were trying to hide and their dis disobedience. We try that all the time too, don't we? We try to, maybe it's not an actual going someplace and hiding, but it's an ignoring the fact that we've disobeyed and just kind of, you know, checking out mentally. Well, I'm not even going to think about that because I know it's disobedience. I, I just don't want to deal with that right now. But we're found by God hiding in our disobedience. So rather than being worshiping before God in obedience, we're hiding in disobedience. God asks us, where are you? Out of love for us. He knows where we are. He just wants us to come to that same realization as well, doesn't he? So question number two. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that? How did you come to that realization? Who deceived you, God is saying? Where are you? The second question is, who deceived you? So after eating of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened, the text says, and they knew that they were naked. Now up until that moment, nakedness was normal. Now I have to honestly say, after all the things that happened and the fall of man, that's one I'm kind of glad happened. Uh, you know, just for me to just have nakedness still rampant would just... I, I, 
I've probably painted a picture for you now you don't need to see, but uh, up until that moment, nakedness was normal. They, they had nothing to hide. There was nothing to hide. Sin hadn't, hadn't entered the world yet, hadn't entered the camp. But now sin was present. Disobedience was present. Their condition, their condition of disobedience had been revealed. They're trying to hide their sin. They're trying to come, uh, cover it up. God said, who told you you were naked? God's saying to them, the only way you could know this is if you have done that which I told you not to do. I've instructed you on what you can do and warned you of what you shouldn't do. And I did that because I love you and I don't, don't want harm to come to you. I'm trying to protect you. I want you to understand that joy is found eternally in me, not in temporary things. It's a message that's still true for us, right? God doesn't want harm to come to us. So when he commands us, tells us, don't do this, he's doing it for our own good. He's trying to protect us. By the same token, if he tells us to do this, the same thing, right? I'm trying to protect you. I love you. It's what he's trying to get across to them and to us. And then question number three, God's saying, what have you done? Where are you? Who deceived you and what have you done? It's a line of questioning that's probably very familiar to us, isn't it? God asks us the same questions. But Eve said to the Lord, the serpent deceived me and I ate. He said there was nothing wrong with it. Come on, try it. It's okay. And it looked good. So I wanted to try it to satisfy my flesh. That's the way the enemy works. He never throws anything out there unattractive and ugly and distasteful or whatever in front of us. It looks good, doesn't it? It looks attractive. That's why we want it. That's why it appeals to our flesh. So those are the kind of tricks he throws out there at us. He deceives us, thinking that this is the thing that we need. God says, what have you done? Where are you? Who deceived you? What have you done? All very simple questions that we complicate with excuses and rationalizations rather than admitting our own guilt. When we feel far from God, it's not because God left us. We've moved on, haven't we? He says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am always there for you. But when you try to hide from me, you're moving away from me. You're not drawing close to me. God wants us to do an honest assessment of ourselves in light of his word and understand our condition. Where are you? I've drawn away from you, Lord. Who deceived you? I've given in to my own flesh, Lord. What have you done? Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. We must be in a place where we answer the question that the Lord is asking. When he's asking the question, he's looking for an answer. He already knows what the answer is, right, gang? So we might as well buck up and tell him what it is. God's fine with us saying... Lord, can you repeat the question? <laughs> you know, we, we do that sometimes as well. I just want to be clear on what you're asking me, Lord. But he wants us to understand what he's asking. He's not the author of confusion. He wants us to know so that disobedience that we've been in can be dealt with. Well, back to the text, we see this simple question that Jesus asked this man. Do you want to be made well? Jesus didn't ask him, how do you want to be made well? Or when do you want to be made well? He asked, do you want to be made well? It's a, it's a pretty straightforward question. Do you? Well, the man thought he could only be made well by what, by what he knew from his past and from his surroundings, by what he'd always believed, by what he'd always been taught. I could be made well if. I could be made well if only. What does Jesus say to him in verse 8? Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus gave three simple instructions, three simple commands. What are they? Do you see them in the text? Uh, how do they apply to us? 
rise up, take up, walk. Well, let's look at those. Rise up. Well, for this man, that would take some great faith on his part. Jesus said, rise up. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from the Lord. Do this thing that I'm telling you to do. If you want to be made well, rise up. You remember what we've studied about recently when we said God's commandments are God's enablements. God's not going to command us to do something without also enabling us to accomplish the very thing that he's commanding us to do. That's the way God works. He's not going to command us to do something without enabling us to carry it out. You don't, I mean, God's not up there going, yeah, Michael, come over here, check this out. I'm going to tell him to do this thing, and he can't do it. <laughs> and I'm not going to help him. He's going to fail miserably. <laughs> this is going to be great. God doesn't work that way. He loves us. So what he commands us to do, he wants also to enable us to do, to help us accomplish it. So Jesus said to the man, rise up or stand up. And up to this point, the man obviously couldn't walk. Jesus is telling him, rise up, stand up. But there must have been something in Jesus' words, his demeanor, his eyes, that empowers this man to even try it. Because we don't see any excuses here, do we? Jesus said, rise up. And the man doesn't go, you obviously don't know me. I, I can't. I'm not capable of that. We don't see that in the text. So I believe that tells us this man sees something. There's some connection that goes on between the Lord and this man with him saying, rise up. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Watch, stand fast in faith, be brave, be strong. So in faith, we're supposed to be brave and be strong. Even when it sounds crazy, even when it's something we don't think we should do, or we have questions about it, God has said it, he's going to enable us to do it, have the faith to step into that and do it. Be brave, be strong in me. Watch what happens. And I also wonder if at that very moment, this man felt this surge go on in his body, this surge of power or, or surge of healing uh, coming over him. Some years ago, I had to have a, a CAT scan. I don't remember. I think it was a brain scan. They obviously didn't find anything. But the CAT scan, and they, they shoot you with this dye. And you get this sensation, and it kind of goes from your head all the way down to your feet, if you've ever had that. It's this, oh, you know, you just feel it go through you. But you know that something has taken place. You know that there's something in your system different than what you had previously to that. And it's, you just have this sensation go through you. I wonder if it was something like that. This sensation that, uh, something's happening, something's going on, what is it? I don't know. I don't know if it was like that for this man. But he responds in faith to this. He responds to the words of Jesus. He responds to the love of Jesus as it comes to him. And it caused him in faith to rise up, to stand up. And it all happened very quickly. The text says, and immediately, in verse 9, immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. That day was the Sabbath. Now when I was putting this teaching together, I really thought <laughs> that I was going to go through this whole story. But uh, as God does sometimes, he reveals things to you and realize you need to park on this for a little bit. I got something, Jim, I want to show you so that you can communicate that with the people. And so we're stopping at verse 9. That's as far as we're going tonight. And we're going to look at this what God says. He says, rise up or stand up, command number one, right? Second one is what? Take up. So, take up what? Take up your bed, take up your mat. So he stands up. He's standing up, and if it was a back or a leg injury, he stands up, and what's the next thing the Lord has him do? Bend over, right? <laughs> The bed's still on the ground. Stand up. Now bend over. Uh, if you've ever had any back problems at all, 
bending over is, ah, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that, you know. So faith step number two, he's standing up, you know. I don't think it was like a, uh, a young deer, you know, standing up for the first time and the legs are, you know, uh, that's a little like Elvis Presley too, but uh, <laughs> these weak legs, these things that he stand on, I believe he was healed 100%. I believe that uh, you, you, there's a term for it that uh, uh, people in the medical field would know, but if you've laid for a long time, you start to lose muscle mass and you're just weak. I believe he stood up and he had full strength in his legs and in his back. That's the way God heals, doesn't he? So he says, bend over, pick up your bed, pick up your mat. So it took faith to stand up, it took faith to bend over and lift anything. But note this, after Jesus had healed this man and he stood up, bending over to pick up his mat would have been easier, wouldn't it? Because he just said, rise up, and he stood up and felt the strength of the Lord in him. He knew that something had changed. He knew that he had been healed. So that next step of faith was easier, wasn't it? Happens with us too, doesn't it? As we see God faithful on our behalf, he commands us to do something. We step out in faith and go, wow, look what the Lord did. So that next step should come easier, shouldn't it? Should come without doubt. So Jesus had just healed him. He could trust Jesus. Jesus says to this man, Take up that which you have been dependent upon for so long. This very thing that you found rest in, this very thing that you found comfort in, this very thing that you have been in bondage to, take up that which you were stuck in. Pick it up. Take it up as a testimony to what I have done for you. It's now a part of your testimony. Carry it with you. It's a reminder of what I brought you out of. Jesus is saying, you're not yet where I want you to be. But you're not where you used to be. Pick up your mat. You asked me earlier. You asked for a man to help you. I don't have a man to help you. The Son of Man has now helped you. For us, Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone desires to come after me, if we want to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying what? First, deny yourself. Ouch. Deny yourself. We're not real good at that. <laughs> You've heard me say it many times here. It's, it's basically the mission statement of our church. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doing those two things and doing them well is denying yourself. I'm focused on God and loving God first and focused on others and loving them second and I come in a distant third or fourth, somewhere there. I'm denying myself. I'm not putting myself first. Put God first, another second. Then it says, take up your cross daily. I like that in Luke. In Matthew, it says, it is take up your cross and follow me. But Luke says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Follow me. I'm your example. Follow my lead. Die to yourself daily. Follow me daily. Follow my direction, my teaching, my word. Don't follow self. Follow me. We've followed self. We know what that leads to. Not, not a pretty thing, is it? So he instructs this man to rise up, take up, and he instructs us. Rise up each day, each morning. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Depend on me. And what? Walk. He tells us to walk. He told this man to walk. He healed him of whatever uh, affliction that he had, and he told him to walk. Yes, physically. But he also sees the man again. We'll look at it next week in verse 14. See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Yes, you were healed physically, but you can also be healed from sin. I can enable you to walk 
spiritually as well. I healed you physically. I can heal you spiritually as well. As we close tonight, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7. Well, where Paul's going to exhort us to walk in, in what we'll see four ways. Paul exhorts us in this text to walk in four ways. If you like to take notes, the first one is walk in truth. The second one is walk in faith. The third is walk in obedience. And the fourth is walk in thanksgiving. Colossians 2 6 and 7 as we read as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord it says so walk in him so Paul is making an assumption here here that that he's speaking to those who have relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. It's an instruction after the fact that we have received Christ. So walk in Him. In verse 7 it says, Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So walk in Him, number one, walk in truth. What is that? Rooted and built up in Him. It speaks of uh, strength and stability. You see a large tree, a healthy tree. There's a lot of those around Berthoud. Trees that have been here for many, many years. You know that they've got a solid root system. They're rooted, built up. Any architectural structure that you see that has a firm foundation. This building was built in the late 1890s. It's been here a long time. So you know it has a firm foundation. It's firmly planted on a solid foundation. Rooted like a strong tree or built on a solid rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's no other foundation that's going to hold up spiritually other than the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Being firmly established, firmly planted in God's word. David wrote in Psalm 119, 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Being firmly rooted, firmly planted, established on a solid foundation of God's word. Walking in that truth. We saw when we started the book of John that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the truth. We are exhorted to walk in Him, walk in His Word, being rooted and built up in Him, walking in truth. If we recognize God's Word is truth, then we can trust it. We can rely on it. That whatever we're going through, the answer can be found in God's Word. It's there. Now, you may not know where to find it. You may need some help, some counseling, some guidance to get there. But it is in God's Word. And we can be rooted, we can be built up in God's Word, strengthened. So walk in Him, walk in truth. And number two, walk in faith. Verse 7 again, rooted and built up in Him and what? established in the faith established in the faith think about this phrase become a walking resume of God's faithfulness a resume of God's faithfulness we fill out resumes when we're looking for other jobs trying to impress people on what we know what we can do and all those different things right it's a resume that captures the things about us what is the makeup that we have well, a resume of God's faithfulness would be a life that is constantly tested and proven God's faithfulness in their life, right? We went through situations, God was there. 
God was faithful. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God doesn't give up on us, does he? <laughs> he is he's so patient. I, I, <laughs> I just think sometimes, Lord, how can you possibly have the patience to put up with one such as I? You know, don't you guys feel like I'm a... I'm not me personally, <laughs> me too, but you guys as well, that you're just a mistake looking for a place to happen. You know, you know That's the way we kind of walk out our lives. We're just an accident looking for a place to happen, a sin looking for a place to take place, something like that. Uh, and God is patient. He loves us. It's a perfect love. It's a perfect patience. Uh, most of us have had kids. Our patience wears thin with kids sometimes, doesn't it? I have wonderful kids, but my patience still wore thin with my kids at times. God's patience never runs thin. God's patience is perfect. And we can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in us, when we came to know him, when we had relationship with him, when we accepted him as our Savior and Lord, he started to work in us. And we can be confident that he's never going to give up on that work. He's going to, and it's going to, he's going to be faithful to complete it. But it does say until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a long-term work. It's a long-term commitment on the part of the Lord. But he's patient with us. But we can stand firm on his promises, on his word. Because we have no idea what lies ahead. But we do know what he's brought us through. You remember in the Old Testament when certain events would take place and God would uh, show himself strong on their behalf, deliver them in a battle or uh, provide for them in a miraculous way. Many times they would build a monument, wouldn't they? They would stack rocks. There would be a monument. It would be a reminder. It would be a benchmark of the work that God had done to remind them Man, God worked in this situation. I remember that. God always wants to bring those things to our remembrance as well. Those things that, times that he's helped us through. Tough times. Times that we can look back on and rejoice now that we're on the other side of it. But that we should remember. And remembering those very things is a faith builder for us. Having confidence in him. Having faith in him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. It's a promise to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't try to lean on your own understanding. Our understanding will fail us many, many times. But in all of our ways, in everything that we do, acknowledge the Lord and the work that He's doing. Lord, why am I doubting you? You've been so faithful in the past. And this is just a little thing, that last thing. That was a big thing. I had to build a big monument for that one. But this thing's just a little thing. This is no big thing for you, Lord. You got this. I'm just going to trust in you. I'm going to have faith in you. He wants us to walk in faith. So walk in him, he says. Walk in truth. Walk in faith. Number three, walk in obedience. It says, we're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. As you have been taught. If he taught us something, he wants us to get it. He wants us to obey that thing that he's taught us. As you've been taught, walk according to my word. 2 John 1, 6 says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Now, again, when we first hear that, oh, it sounds burdensome, doesn't it? His commandments. But what did we just say? God's commandments are God's enablements. God is there to help us accomplish that which he has commanded us to do. And John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, how many of us love the Lord? Everybody raise your hand, okay? <laughs> It's a simple question. We've talked about those. Raise your hand. Everybody should love the Lord in here. We do. 
Do we always keep his commandments? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now he knows us. He knows how we are. He knows that we fall short. He knows that or he wouldn't have had to send Jesus to start with, right? He knows we're sinners. We're saved by grace. He knows we're going to mess up. What he's saying is here, if you love me, do your very best to keep my commandments. I know you're going to struggle sometimes. I know you're going to fall short sometimes. But the default mode should be, you love me, so you're going to try to keep my commandments. God's commandments are God's enablements. He, he's not going to command us to do this thing without enabling us to accomplish it. How does he do that? Well, he's given us his Holy Spirit. He says, when I go, I will send you what? A helper. The Holy Spirit is a helper. And all the things that uh, are descriptions uh, of the Holy Spirit and all the things that we've been taught, that's one that we need to hang on to. That's our lifeline, if you will. The Holy Spirit was sent to be our helper. And so anybody that's going to help is somebody that you can cry out to. Right? Everybody in here, I know, uh, you have a heart to help. If somebody calls up and says, hey, I'm moving. I need somebody to help. Well, maybe not that one. Um, if somebody... <laughs> That's, that's taking friendship a long ways, isn't it? You ever, you ever see the bumper tr sticker on trucks that says, yes, this is my truck, and no, I don't want to help you move? I love that one. <laughs> but we want to be there. We want to be a help to people. God is an ever-present help in time of need, we know. He sends us his Holy Spirit to be there to help us. He's given us his Holy Spirit as a, as a helper. He's given us his Holy Spirit for strength, for power. He knew we couldn't do it on our own. He had to send us a helper to help us accomplish that. His strength is what? It's perfected in our weakness. He's just waiting for us to cry out to him. He loves that. God loves it when we say to him, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And he says, yes, I know that. I love you. I want to help you. So he says, walk in obedience. That very thing that we're struggling with is the very thing that he wants to help us with. Number three, walking in obedience. So we've got, so walk in him. Walk in truth. Walk in faith. Walk in obedience. Walk in thanksgiving. He says, root it and build up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Walking in thanksgiving. How often do we thank the Lord? You ever get up of a morning and you just get up and you, you're kind of in a fog and then the realization hits you, oh, there's a God. Like, you know, I forgot, you know, I'd been asleep, I'm kind of in a fog. Uh, our thoughts weren't on the Lord maybe when we first woke up. We should wake up every morning thanking the Lord because without the Lord, the breath that we're even breathing wouldn't be there, right? He's in control of all things. So I heard it said a long time ago, every morning we just wake up is a sweet Jesus morning. Amen? <laughs> so waking up in the morning with that thought in our minds, in our hearts, God, it's the start of what? It's the start of a new day. His mercies are new every morning, the scripture says. I like that verse because I know well, I messed up yesterday. I got a clean slate today. It's, his mercies are new every morning. I got a whole new set of mercies available to me for the day. Thank God I do because I'm going to work today. Or I'm driving down I-25 today, or whatever it may be for you. God's mercies are new every morning. So we need to give thanks to the Lord. We need to be thankful each and every day. I, I, you know, I, I think I talked about this once before, but uh, uh, Brian and I, when we were going through discipleship, we kind of had this moment. There was one time where we were thinking about the, the structure of our day, and we come up with this terminology of a briefing and a debriefing. 
So we get up early in the morning and we have a briefing with the Lord because the Lord knows what's going to take place that day, doesn't he? He already knows what the day holds, so it seems just to make sense. Hey, I think I'll check in with the Lord. He knows what's going on in my day anyway. No need for me to grip about it because he's already got it all worked out. All I got to do is trust in him, have faith in him to guide me through that day, right? So I'm going to go to the Lord and spend some time with the Lord early in the morning for that briefing. Lord, talk to me. Build me up. Strengthen me for whatever it is that you have for me that day. And we go through the day. And we're trusting in the Lord. We have some tough times. We have some bad times maybe. But we're trusting in the Lord. And then at the end of our day, to do a debriefing, to say, Lord, I, I just want to spend some time looking back over the course of the day and recognizing what you did. I needed help in that one area. and ah, You were there. I had this one thing come up, Lord, I wasn't even expecting. And you were there. And giving Thanksgiving almost every evening, piling up those rocks, building that monument of the work that God did in that particular day. Giving thanks. Giving thanks. Giving thanks of a morning. Giving thanks of an evening. I don't know, it sounds crazy, but we can even do it during the day. Imagine that. <laughs> Not just the three times a day when we eat, and we pray, but you know, all day long. Lord, thank you. Lord, I'm going through this. I need your help. Oh, thanks, Lord. That helped a lot. You know, just being in that place where we're living in thanksgiving to the Lord. I mean, gang, let's face it. If we didn't have anything else the rest of our life to be thankful for, what he's already done is enough to be thankful for the rest of our lives by saving us, period, right? Just that one thing alone. We've got much to be thankful for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That one thing, that verse right there says it all that we should be thankful for. So he's exhorting us in this verse to walk. He said to this man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. That's something we have to do every day. We don't get to just uh, pull the covers over our head. Well, maybe we do some days, but uh, most days we know that we've got to get up, we've got to go out, and we've got to walk out this Christian life, don't we? And we don't have to do it alone. He's, uh, he sent us a helper to do that. But he does say walk. He expects us to take the steps, doesn't he? Walk. Walk in truth. Walk in faith. Walk in obedience, walk in thanksgiving, walk in his love, walk in him. Amen.